Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. Enjoy that Los Angeles rain. Although if you live here, you are probably sick of it. Uh, to live in a place with a drought all the time, and then when you get rain, you're like, hey, this is great. Wow, we needed this. And then after however many straight hours, 40 or so hours of straight rain and no sunshine, you're like, oh yeah, th this is for other places, not for here. So it's sunny out now as I record this. I thought you might enjoy these soft, subtle tones of steady rain. Come on in. Make yourself comfortable. Get away from all the worries and troubles of the world. Come on into the space cave and enjoy a conversation with a botanist, a returning guest, a great citizen, a very fun conversation. Before we get into that, just a reminder, this show is... Brought to you ad-free because of contributions from listeners just like you. You can go to patreon.com slash spacecave. Uh, the most recent season of These Are Those Tapes is now out completely. Uh, six new episodes with my friend Wendy Molyneux. It's just complete nonsense. If you like people just kind of riffing and goofing around, it's that. Each episode's about 25 minutes. And some of you may have started listening to this show because of a podcast called Professor Blastoff, which when it ended, was locked away behind a paywall at Stitcher. And then when Stitcher, Stitcher went away, and you may not notice, know this, they, uh, they own the rights to the name. So for a long time, we were just kind of stuck in this contractual situation where the show was completely out of our hands. We couldn't, even when we did a few reunion shows, we couldn't use the name. It was bizarre. And then Stitcher, when they closed up shop, said, hey, you can have all that back. And so in the interim, we would get a lot of requests from people. Where can I find these episodes? Either I don't want to have a Stitcher membership and or I never got one. And so we've started this Patreon to allow people to get all the episodes. But we're giving them a once over just to make sure things aged okay. And that takes some time. So that's why it's a Patreon and not just, you know, a zip file put up here, grab all the episodes. So if you have all the episodes downloaded, you have the catalog of that show, you're in great shape. You can listen to it whenever. It's from 10 years ago, so I don't know uh, who it's for necessarily, but for those of you who listened to it a bunch, never downloaded it, you can now get those episodes as they slowly come back into... And the, so far there haven't really been many edits. So uh, hear the episodes as they were, as they come out, and... Um, that's another Patreon. So a lot of Patreons. There's also a membership site for uh, The Endless Abyss, which is where Intercepts is hosted, which is a sketch podcast I do. New episodes of that are coming soon. Uh, and the reason for that, I can get into a whole thing there, but um, <laughs> it's just for other... Uh, yeah, I, I think I talked about that in a Patreon, why I started the whole 
not doing that one through Patreon. There's a whole reason for it. Anyway, uh, if you are a patron here at the Space Cave, then I, I usually, if you haven't, make sure you've checked in with me because everyone who's been a Patreon member has a free membership to the Endless Abyss. So if you're like, wait a second, I don't have that, message me through the Patreon and I'll make sure that you're set up over there. Anyway, goodness gracious, that's too much stuff up top. But now you have all that. Okay, as I mentioned, a great guest, fascinating dude. I really like chatting with him. We end beer for the first time in a while. We didn't have uh, the ability to coordinate and get the exact same type of beer, but we're in the same uh, general vicinity in that we're both drinking lagers. We talk about that. The Space Cave, sharing beers, feels good. It was an enjoyable conversation. Here's part one with Matt Candeas. Matt Candeas, returning guest, probably probably early enough where uh, Apple Podcasts only does like the most recent 100 episodes. That could be something with the bandwidth of the website where the show is sort of hosted uh, originally. And then I've learned a lot about how podcasts get distributed to the player apps and how everyone has monetized the way a way to make that simplified mm-hmm. if you're looking to start a podcast which i think every person has one at this point i think every human <laughs> kind of have to right yeah it's like a resume of, now. i remember doing stand-up um during the professor blastoff days and reaching out to a club and saying something like you know i i think some people will show up if you know if you have room and they sorry we don't book podcast people okay imagine that now it's a legit credit now you'll hear people like as seen on this podcast yeah they they would say to me back then you know if you had a conan credit or something maybe and i'd be like i'm in comedy clubs all the time i just can't remember the last time a person showed up specifically from any late night set not to right (laughs) (laughs) and so uh but anyway you were you, you might be on the threshold of most recent 100 or not. That'd be interesting to look back nice. on. But I remember our chat. And at that time, yeah. I was a little more interested. I think a, a notion we, that we touched upon a number of times that you very delicately talked about and didn't completely shoot down and didn't uh, verify the idea of this communication between plants, some idea of consciousness of some sort. And um, and then I sent you that news or that article this week that claimed... Uh, a study in Japan had sort of a- acquired or captured some data, some footage of that sort of thing happening. And mm-hmm. then uh, I thought that was one of those like attention grabbing headlines where you're like, this proves it. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm glad I'm talking with Matt this week because I'm going to guess <laughs> there's a little bit le- like to be desired from this study. Sure. Yeah. I was really stoked when you sent that to me because it's one of those things that like, it's a big topic, right? And it's something that a lot of scientists have returned to in recent decades. And a lot of attention has been paid to in recent decades, uh, especially in the last five years, which is really cool. And I think there's like a more nuanced discussion going on with it, which is kind of cool. You're getting a more resound sort of approach to it. But this study in particular was fascinating because you sent the Yahoo article. It was, you know, kind of a short form, sort of like this is how we're reporting on it. And I was like, all right, we got to click through to get more here. And they 
seem to have like genetically modified these plants to fluoresce when they're responding to chemicals, right? And I think any conversation about plant communication has to be couched in this idea that like they are sessile organisms with no central processing unit. Communication is just going to look wildly different than anything we're going to be familiar with, even within like the broad spectrum of animal world. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm for it. I think the study was really interesting. I don't think the Yahoo author did a good job of reporting on it, but it's a really cool study nevertheless. I, it's funny. I did send you the Yahoo one, and I use that as kind of like an aggregator, but it is so weird, and I'm guessing there are a bunch of different sites that do a similar thing, which is to kind of claim web traffic as their own to say, like, here's essentially what happens in this article or this post or this video or this thing that we're we're just kind of attaching our name to. And so usually I will dig through a little further and find, like, where's the root of this? Who are they borrowing this for? Where was this published initially? And sometimes they do a better job than others. But I'm glad you followed it to something more of a root source of the study being <laughs> published. But the, the, for me, the headline was enough and like that they did cite the study itself and a few scientist quotes. Yeah. And I was like, okay, just the, the high points there. I don't, I didn't understand it enough, like well enough, even the things that you're referencing, like how does a plant fluoresce? I don't like, to me, that is very foreign. So when I read a study mm. like that, like, oh yeah, fluoresce, oh, that makes sense. I just, <laughs> I feel like, yes. I don't know if I'm ever going to fully understand, uh, this is off topic, but I, t- I studied a bit of like electrical engineering and I just am terrible with that now. I like the idea oh, of gosh, yeah. circuitry and, and how batteries work. I'm really into learning more about batteries uh, just because I think that is like DC current going in from a solar panel to charge something up. How's that working? What's going on there? How's that happening? And um, yeah. plants too, photosynthesis. And it's a word like people will jokingly use. Like I went to school, photosynthesis and such, ribosomes, I get it. But I, I really feel like all of that has just kind of left me. It happens so quick. And I mean, it's quicker than you realize. And it's there's no shame to that, right? Like the amount of time you have to spend really diving into the literature, especially nowadays with how fast the pace of technology and investigations and just like the bean counter side of scientific research have to progress. It's 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 no different than like you graduate, you don't, you go, you get away from like the mass quantities of people and suddenly you don't know new music. It happens so much quicker than that. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you, you know, as a, as a plant focused ecologist, I always thought like, oh yeah, I've got photosynthesis down. Like I totally understand that. And then you meet someone that studies that and you start looking at the diagrams and stuff that they're running through and things they still don't know. And you're like, I, I know 101 level. <laughs> <laughs> And just that surface level, maybe there's a parallel there with knowing the human body and the biology that goes into, like, so a, a buzz term, like telomeres or tal- t- I think I'm saying that right. I will pronounce it telomeres. Yeah, it sounded right. Uh, but chromosomes and genes and replication and, and kind of studying how genes replicate and how, and how they create cancerous cells and how can we stop that, you know, mutation from happening with with cells in a plant you're like oh it's it's just this kind of 101 level photosynthesis it can only be this but almost like an atom going in a little deeper a little further to be like no there's way more nuance within it there's all this little stuff that's happening beyond the big terms that you know 
and that could be you know the same with a human body but is that something that interests you to get into to to know the the structure of plant life that well I like it as like a passing hobby. I am so happy. I'm not expected to know it. I'm so, so happy. Like I don't get paid to know that kind of stuff, um, which makes diving into like, it's a hobby, right? Like it's so much more enjoyable to kind of explore your hobbies than a job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think the most fascinating thing about plants is the fact that like they're, they're iterative organisms. Right. And so you have this like basic building block, which is the plant cell. And then within that, they start to differentiate. I mean, not to say that like that doesn't happen in all other forms of biology, but it's like a lot of repeated units. So like there's roots, but then there's rootlets and root hairs, and they're all kind of smaller iterations of the same structure. And then you got like a trunk, you got the branches, which are just smaller trunks, and then the leaves. And so, yeah, to understand a plant cell, to me at least, makes more sense of of needing to understand that first to really get at the core of like how plants work because like again we don't look at them and think like oh look at that brain that they have with the central nervous system that goes out like they are really just like you could cut a branch off root it and have an exact clone of that plant yeah i was doing that or i learned that recently and i probably should have fundamentally known that i knew it with <laughs> succulents we had this one that just had yeah it was a someone had given it to us, and so the pot had this really long, untouched branch or root, whatever it was. And then after ten inches in this little jar pot thing, the succulent started happening and having these you know pretty kind of leaves. But I was like, "What a! It's like a groomed poodle. It looks so bizarre, and it was kind of <laughs> kind of untenable to have it because it would flop over on the table and it couldn't hold itself up." So I finally made a decision, like. Friend, you were too ugly for me, and it and it's a danger to you. So I cut it, and I just put it in the dirt. And I remember my partner being like, ah, oh, what'd you do? What'd you just do? And I was like, listen, we're all in uncharted territory here. I think it could work, but if it doesn't, I've just decided this plant is too ugly and too helpless, and it's thriving. It's doing great now. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. You can't do that with your cat or your dog, right? Like, <laughs> you shamefully uh, get in a lot of trouble and potentially go to jail for that. When someone is looked at as, or is not looked at, certifiably defined as a psychopath, you wonder the the drive, the curiosity that's there of scalping things up. Because if you do that within a biology class, hey, yeah, it's curiosity. Right. Da Vinci used to want to go to the morgue and would do this. Hey, can I, can I get some cadavers? I want to cut them up a little and draw the muscle striation. I want to look at the the fibers and how they... How, they, how do they attach to stuff? That is a bit psychotic, and yet he drew it very elegantly and very beautifully. So the medical charts are kind of born out of that sort of weird macabre fascination. And uh, right. where where does that line start and stop with, no, 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 I'm just curious. But if you saw a kid like right. dissecting a plant in a way that was like, that's a little creepy, at the root of it is just this human desire to like, I want to know what's going on here. I want to know how this works. Yeah, or you think of something like the 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 practice of bonsaiing trees, right? I mean, that is like really torturing and and gnarling and clipping and and purposefully harming this organism to encourage sort of scal calloused growth and stuff like that. And uh, 
So, you know, it's one of those things where like it's a practice that's been going on for thousands of years. It's a cultural tradition throughout, uh, you know, these cultures. And now it's being adopted by a wider audience. But you're still like forcing this organism to grow a specific way out of this subjective viewpoint of of art and, and expression. But at the same time, you know, chopping up a, a squirrel that's still alive and conscious, that thing is definitely feeling pain. Uh, it's very questionable how plants are feeling if that's a thing and like we know they respond to touch we know they respond to these sorts of stimuli but i think it's different right and i say i i still come back to that like central processing center i am so ready to be proven wrong on that but like <laughs> having a nervous system i think makes a big difference in that argument yeah i i got drawn into this documentary called trees I won't say anything negative or positive about it. I didn't finish it. But bonsai, or as they pronounce it over and over in the documentary, bonsai, just felt a little, not pretentious, but like it it isolated me a bit where I was like, they're taking this very seriously. But it also seemed like a practice. It's just one of those that I don't get. These are sort Mm. of those like sound blurbs that decades later you're like look how stupid you sounded you didn't understand it like i get that there's you know podcasts are these archives of where you are at in time and currently i just don't understand the need to bend a tree's shape to your will for artistic merit and what subjectively makes one an absolute masterpiece and the other a pile of garbage when it's at the end at the root of it no joke there i just uh (sighs) kind of a, kind of an exercise in control or torch I don't know what it is what what yeah. is that I think it is control right and and artistic expression is part of like shaping your environment around you for these subjective viewpoints whether that's culturally rooted or just personally rooted and uh you know it's one of those things I have always had an interest in growing plants bonsai was like yeah why not i'll check it out you know and i've i've attempted to grow trees for the purpose of like maybe trying it someday but i always lose patience because i'm like yeah this thing wants to do this and as soon as i bring out the scissors i'm like no it's doing fine i don't need to mess with it (laughs) but i've gone to i've gone to like bonsai club meetings and like i really do respect like the patience and the artistry of it but like like you said it's just no this you can't do this and you have to have this rule and this sort of expression is just doesn't go to the form of like this philosophy of bonsai and i was like "Eh, whatever i don't care (laughs) it's not for me yeah if i met someone that did bonsai because they liked trees i think i'd be friends with them and yet when i started hearing the rules like comedy has that people oh you got to come out and talk about yourself and establish a base and then you can start telling like anything that feels like it has kind of a rule i inherently dislike immediately especially if it's supposed to be artistic let me let me yeah. fiddle around with those rules a little bit. How about if I shape this tree where I just let it do what it wants and I give it some water? They're like, well, then you don't have a tortured tree. You don't have a bonsai tree. You just have a regular happy tree growing in a normal rate. Right. But it, for me, I think it stems from so like the last place we lived, uh, spending the the lockdown there. I think that changed a lot of people's perception of where you live, and you got a lot of time. Like, I might want to clean this up mm. a little bit, or an old place that had you know really beautiful brass hinges that at some point had been bumped with some paint i was like i'm gonna take those all off get rid of all this paint shine up this brass and it looked really pretty and then in the course of that cleaning windows then looking out the window and realizing this window is kind of never open because it's somewhat shared sort of uh parking lot space out the side like driveway space with the neighbor 
And as I looked out, this tree had been staked there with a little wooden stake and a piece of twine around it years ago. And as so often happens, the tree grew and the twine didn't let go. And then it had this gnarly incision or, I don't know, like gap where it, yeah. it was just choking it. It was choking it so harshly that I was like, oh, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what bonsai feels like to me. I went out and I cut it mm. loose. And shortly after that, we got you know our new place. And I think the tree had a hand in it. So not only central nervous system, like a whole a whole um, in touch with the whole universe thing that trees are. They're like, this guy was good to me. Why don't you give him a new place to live? I'm like, thanks, trees. Nice. Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, that's insanity. I don't think I believe that, but I like the, yeah, why not? If you're going to believe in something, trees, sure. they have all the power. There are wilder ideas out there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. And, you know, it's kind of like, when you read something that, you know, as a scientist, I completely disagree with, but maybe it did inspire someone. You, there's like an element of like, well, it's going to take the edge off of me because, hey, if that person cares a little bit more about plants at the other end, okay, whatever. We'll work on the other belief systems and like what, reality versus sort of the spirit realm, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's a whole different thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I'm, I don't know where people would or would not get a fundamental appreciation or like. I mean, them giving off, off oxygen and us needing that, you'd think that'd be a pretty decent starting point to like, whoa, go sure. easy. Don't chop all those guys down. But like, do you use, one, do you celebrate any holidays in like roughly the December toward the end of the year area? Yeah, my partner is super, uh, you know, grew up in a very uh, Polish Catholic upbringing we hold a lot of the traditions we don't put a lot of meaning behind them um but you know it's going through the motions she loves the the tree the decoration that sort of thing so i follow along <laughs> and do you use a um a plastic tree or a cut live tree we have used cut live trees in the past um especially when we were living in an area with a lot of cedars uh junipers i mean um they call them red cedar. It's a juniper. It's a whole thing in taxonomy <laughs> versus common names. But we used to cut those because we lived in the prairie and they were encroaching in the prairie. And I didn't feel bad because I was helping the grassland perpetuate by removing some of the woody trees. But now that we've moved to the southeast, uh, coming across the good shaped conifer. So we, we used an artificial one this year. OK. Yeah, I, I, I like to think of it in those terms, too. What sort of industry are you supporting here? Are they deforesting right. land or is it you know at a detriment or... Likely it's something humans are doing. It's not great. But I do like that now a lot of yeah. Christmas tree farms are replanting and kind of using the same acreage and then you're mulching it if you're disposing of it. In some way, there's like a minimal impact that a live tree would have where, I don't know, plastic, I guess, if it lasts 50 or 100 years, but it is still plastic in the end. Right. So then, I don't know. Yeah. It, I think, you know, the plastic tree thing is like arguably worse, like pound for pound. I think, you know, Christmas tree farming can be done ethically. It can be done less damaging. And that's the point I like to get across a lot of the times is like, we're modern humans, right? We're doing a lot of weird stuff on this planet at an extremely high abundance. And so it's one of those things where like farming versus permaculture, it's not about bad versus good for the planet. It's about really bad and then a lot less harmful. <laughs> What I like about, and I've found this almost like if I were doing metadata, like tags, I guess, for, for an episode, how frequently things that could be 
put under the umbrella of climate change, but more just ecology of in any of the sciences, there is some accountability or thought toward that. Obviously, like in botany, you know, you have that's a huge component, grasslands and the sustainability or or like um, how how. Uh, at risk they are, whereas, you know, you might be talking to like a mm-hmm. physicist and you're talking about mining something or or building something that's going to travel a long distance and, oh, hey, that, there's a lot of material. Where would that come from? Well, that's, I'm glad you've asked. The process we would use to do this is there, there's been some measures taken. Now, maybe they're not. Maybe sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to put so much, <laughs> like, you know, uh, exhaust into the atmosphere. This is going to be catastrophic. Right. But you hope that at some point there's a little consideration there is some regulation to those industries. It's a function of like, is it enough? Or are they building in enough to pay for the fines when they just say, eh, to hell with that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a terrible thought. Like, what they put yeah. the fine at? Oh, we could, it's nothing. Let's keep going. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. I don't like thinking of that. Well, not to get too far off in the weeds on that. Sure. Before we start, um, you are, I think, have already started enjoying your lager. We finally brought beer back to the podcast. It has been a while, and yes. someone had um, requested it a while back. Like, are you still doing that? And I was like, I guess in theory, I just one have haven't been involving it in my normal life as much, and two, like doing the, um, the Zoom or the you know the telecommunication version. It doesn't feel quite the same as like, hey, cheers. However, it's still better than nothing. It's a fun excuse yeah. to. We, you and I decided that we couldn't, it was very unlikely with you now in Huntsville, Alabama, sourcing the same type of lager that I would source. But we did, right. we agreed and we decided to each source a lager. And I came home with Simpler Times Lager Beer. It is about as plain and simple as like a logo gets. I really like it. It's a nice typeface. Nice. It's a, It seems like a beer. It seems like uh like a working man would drink it, but not like a crappy one, not one who is hard on his kids. It's like an elegant uh, working man's lager beer <laughs> to go pull up the yeah, hood. The light-handed working man. Yeah, he's gentle. He's he's kind and considerate and going to be patient and show you how to put the right wrench on the right bolt kind of person. Not to say it's Love only it. for men. Simpler times, it's for everybody. Right, right. There we go. All-inclusive, delicious lager. Yeah, what'd you come up with? So I, um, uh, we, we, we spent uh, a little bit of time down on the, the coast, the Gulf Coast, and one of our favorite breweries is down there, Oyster City. Shout out to them. And so we brought back, it's called Tate's Hells. It's a <laughs> Hells German-style lager. Whoa. And it's, I love it because it's named after Tate's Hell, which is a really hellacious chunk of habitat in Apalachicola. <laughs> <laughs> Apalachicola. Yes, one of the hidden gems of the Gulf Coast. Um, Just this beautiful, natural, multi-use sort of wild space on the in the Florida Panhandle. And you've have you've gone there and studied? Have you been around it and looked at the? Uh, My yeah, my partner worked on some endangered plants uh, down in that area, and I took every opportunity to be her field tech anytime (laughs) I could, just to botanize and explore. Cool. Well, I'm going to crack mine open. I think you've already cracked yours, but here's to yeah, loggers. Say the name of yours again. It's, it's a Hell's what? Tate's Hell's. Tate's Hell's. Um, well, yeah, here we go. <laughs> All right. Pretty good Foley Cheers, work friend. there. Cheers. Good to see you again. Nice. Thanks for doing the show again. Yeah. 
Um, Thanks for having me back on. Of course. Yeah, I, you know, I say a lot during recording or at the end, come back and do it again. And everyone goes, yeah, that'd be great. And then I don't, I haven't done the best job. And lately with just getting back into the rhythm of it, uh, I've been trying to make a better effort to do that, to just reach out and, and check in with previous guests to be like, it's been a while, let's chat. And uh, yours was a conversation that popped right to my head because I, I really, nice. um, well, and two, I think I told you, like I had had this experience with both bamboo and then this invasive ivy that I had so many questions yeah. about. So I was like, but before I get into that, I want to, you, you mentioned something about being a field tech just it made it sound like it was nuts and bolts botany like hey hey i'm not here for the frills i'm not here for all this fame and attention you do all the work friend and i'll just clip and bag is that what you're doing just kind of i'm writing the numbers on it i'm charting what acreage this came from i mean what does that mean to be like a tech more or less yeah it wasn't my project it was hers and so i was just a helping hand Um, for her work it was a lot of what we call meandering surveys where you go out to an area and she was trying to validate these models she was building to predict where this rare plant might be and where it might not be and so you have to go out to some of these spots and is it there is it not there so you have to wander some wide tracks of land and look for it and so you know having a trained eye really helps so that got me a heads up in the interview process with her and then, uh, <laughs> yeah, helping record data, hold GPS units, um, that sort of stuff. And, and yeah, it's, it is exactly, it's nuts and bolts because you're like, I don't have to do anything with these data. I'm just going to help you. And then whatever comes out <laughs> the other end is your concern. And when you're talking about data, let's just like paint a picture of the day you park the car. What are you, what are you taking out of the trunk as far as field devices? Great question. So uh, for her work, we were going out, we'd park the car, putting on our wellies because you're usually walking through some wet rattlesnake country. um, Like swimming rattlesnakes? No, no, it's not that wet. I mean, there's definitely like pools of water, but like pygmy rattlesnakes will hang out in the sandy stuff and they look a lot like sticks. So you just have to, (laughs) wellies help you, you know, they're not going to as easily bite through. These are like fishing waders, like those kind of things? essentially. Okay. Okay. And it keeps it keeps all the biting insects off of you for the most part. Um, you usually end up paying for that. But tools of the trade are usually um, she's got a sheet of data for like presence, absence, uh, abundance. If you do find it, like you do estimates of like how many stems or how much area is the population covering. And then a GPS unit so that you're validating like, hey, this is where my model said it might be. We're within X amount of meters of that. Um Cameras always want to have photo evidence, um, you know, a, a field key if you need it. Uh, her species was fairly easy to identify, but if it's one of those weird, weird, weird sort of endemics where there's like really three good common ones and one rare one, they all look alike. You got to know like, well, this hair goes this way on this one and the hair <laughs> goes that way on the other one. So, yeah. Man, I mean, I just picture being out there as a dad Someone brought up recently that, you know, the amount of brand names kids can identify easily and via their logos and how depressing that is and being out of nature and just anything, types of trees, types of plants, whatever, and being out there where you guys are and say, see this here, son, I think this is called. And then you and your partner show up and go, do you want to know what that is? Do you want to know what every (laughs) single thing around here is and how many of them there are? Look at this chart. I mean, that would be like a goldmine of a day for anyone 
I think when you step out, you're like, oh, here we, we're the only ones out here, and this is kind of what a what a niche sort of passion to have. And yet, that's I mean that anyone that's listening to this show probably likes confronting that, running into someone that knows a lot about something in the open, in the wild, to to see you guys out there doing it and be able to pick your brain or what is that? What's that called? What is, why does that thrive here? Or why is there so little of that? Or is that rare? Is it endangered? What does that mean that it is endangered and how do you protect it? I guess. Okay. So you've, you've, you've set the stage. You're like getting your chart together and say you haven't found what you're looking for and you just keep trudging on. What are you sending back to show that you did a full day's work as far as here's a photograph of the whole landscape or a very, one foot by one foot close up of, I mean, what are, what are you giving the, the investor or the boss or the company or whatever to say, we looked and we couldn't find it? Great question. Yeah. Uh, deliverables are always something you got to consider. But, you know, for us, there's hundreds of photos at every site because we're obviously seeing other things that are really cool. But um, one neat thing about the GPS units that she's been using is you set a track and it shows where you've kind of covered. And when you're field validating like a presence absence model, uh, a species distribution model, sorry, um, you know, you're looking at sort of like a heat map of probability, right? And so when she puts all the data in and figures out some of the parameters they want to test, you'll get a heat map where like blue is not likely to have it, but like hot red is a, a high probability chance that it's going to be there. And so you kind of want to just run transects to show that like, Hey, your model's good if it is there, but also good if it's not, you don't want to be not predicting it in areas where it is. So you just want to show enough coverage um, that you've, you've done your due diligence to look for this species. And, you know, again, when you're working with rare stuff, like the species she was working with at the time, there's enough of like a narrow habitat band that like, you don't have to really like scour the entire forest. It's like, Oh, if we kind of stick on this like little weird divot near this wetland area where there's, that's most likely where you're going to find it. So even the predicted bands were pretty small. That's, I mean, I think I brought this up last time that being in sort of the cowboy world and you, you're always looking for places to graze cattle and there's always some mm. obstacle, whether that is predators, it's fences down, it's someone else trying to move their cattle onto that. I mean, those are like kind of basic ones, but some of the other ones might be uh, there's a protected area and or there's a survey or a study going on. And the, you know, the cowboys, obviously, would get very frustrated. Ah, oh, there's this grad student, hippie guy out there in a tent. They're studying some bug that's on the bank of the creek, and they're shut. we got to drive the cows 10 miles up and around it so that they can protect this stupid bug. And I would imagine things like that potentially happen in any ecosystem where you guys show up and you say, hey, this is this is rare, and maybe there's someone else, you know, if you are in the the area you mentioned, you know, Florida, maybe there's like a gator area that is protected or at risk. And how do, how do all those things end up coming together? Like when you're showing this is at risk, is that who's that up to to say, oh, well, let's put all focus and attention to protecting that and or does it sometimes just get immediately shut down? Like, well, there's nothing we can do because there's this spotted blah, blah, blah bird or there's this frog or there's this, we can't do stuff because we're already doing this in that area. Yeah, the overlap in terms of 
other organisms that might be rare is I've I've yet to encounter a scenario where you know oh we're trying to protect this but that would get in the way of protecting that because usually there's like some holistic ecosystems management stuff going on right like I know a lot of people that are working in the panhandle of Florida on this really cool salamander that's critically endangered and the things they're doing to restore its habitat so like regular prescribed burning, clearing wetlands from encroaching shrubs, like those are also benefiting a lot of these plants that we're working with. But I have worked in scenarios where like out West, for instance, I, I was doing work at, in Wyoming where it was counter to the narrative where it was either this rare species was getting in the way of a gas well pad for drilling, or like you said, ranching, um, that was always kind of a nerve wracking thing because we're in government vehicles and the <laughs> ranchers already don't want to see you. And so yeah. then you're talking about it, rare stuff. So you like kind of pick what you're telling. Um, we weren't out there enforcing anything, luckily for our sake, because we were just young, young warthogs at the time, but uh, <laughs> not a lot of power. Um, but, you know, the, the decision making comes down to really it's like federal level protection so is this something that is listed does this have like a federally listed management plan that sets regulatory procedures for what you can and can't do i mean that's why like you know the endangered species act comes under fire every once in a while because those are the scenarios where you have a situation in which industry comes up against land use right and so that's why people would no don't list that because then people are going to come onto our land and tell us we can't do x y and z and like some of the projects I've been working on lately uh, with oaks, for instance, you know, we have a critically endangered oak, but it has no federal protection. So you can do whatever you want. We approach landowners and say, hey, we want to find more of this tree. We want to help you manage it because, hey, it's good for like what, hunting or something like that. But the better you help us manage this tree, the less likely it is to end up on any endangered <laughs> species list. So yeah. it's like be a steward, right? And it, there's a lot of reasons, good reasons, fiscal reasons even for you to be a good steward. But the biggest is like, if you keep this population happy and healthy and you help your friends do the same, it's less likely the government's going to come in and regulate it. That is a recurring theme in the last few conversations as far as climate change. Who who really wants to see a dirty, filthy planet if you're on the very conservative end and God and guns, you probably want to hunt with those guns and being out in a place with it's filled with trash and no animals and doesn't make any sense. So being a steward so that your right. ecosystems are healthy and that there are the animals you'd like to hunt there makes sense for everybody. And uh, I, I just, I think that when it's presented that way, hey, the, just a heads up, you and I might not vote even remotely similarly, but this tree right here <laughs> is going to benefit all parties if you're good to it. Government's not going to come out yeah. and bother you. It's not the ecosystem's going to be healthier. There's zero negatives here. But that person at the door might see you and be like, oh, "I don't like the look of this guy. Cut the tree down." It feels like that is sometimes right. people's response to things. It's 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 baffling. Where it just feels like, but you defied all logic. There's no result from what you just were presented with. Where cutting this tree down was anything other than spiteful, kind of malignant, weird. Yep response to feeling threatened or scared or told what to do yeah and i think that's like so much of what i've been doing with in defense of plants in recent years especially since the pandemic is trying to look at how you approach talking about these subjects and i think you hit the nail on the head is you really have to approach people where they're at and the thing that's most frustrating about a lot of like progressive movements right now is let's alienate anyone that doesn't sound 
exactly like we think you should sound in terms of saying the right things at the right time. And I don't think it's doing any justice for any of the movements we believe in, right? And a great example of that is um, Team's Buckwheat out west. It, it's this little buckwheat plant that grows in Nevada on like one mountain. It's endemic. It grows nowhere else in the world. And it was threatened by a lithium mine. Lithium, sorry. And, uh, you know, it, they put up a stink about it, rightfully so. People spoke out and, are, you know, pushed to get it federally protected. But then the at the time it was called Twitter, uh, the Twitter war started. And then like, all that snarky sort of like, well, it's us versus them. And someone got pissed and just went up with a shovel in the middle of the night and destroyed half the population just out of spite. <laughs> and everyone's like, well, see how terrible these people are. I'm like, well, you know, you played a big role in pissing them off. Like, <laughs> I know it's not right, but like, it's communication. We have to realize there's like consequences to the way we talk about this stuff and the way we alienate people and, and don't even consider their side of it. Now, again, there's a lot of reasons why their side might not be right, but you can't ignore their feelings and their emotions about it. And you got to navigate that better. Yeah. I mean, what a weirdly virtually uh, identical real life scenario to like the fake sort of portrait I was painting about the person, but that is really how it feels. And then to know in, in the yeah, real world, it's playing itself out very similarly to that. It's uh, I wouldn't say it's depressing. It's a setback emotionally to then go, well, how, yeah. How do you regroup from that? You can either f force at it again, these idiots, or maybe you regroup and rethink and go, how can I approach that? How I'd like to be approached and not be talked down to, not be, you know, people don't just tell me, you got to do this. Uh, why? I have a few questions. No, you're stupid if you have questions. You're stupid if you're defiant. No. You're, you're like, wow, hang on. So that that might be just a, a normal human response to things. And when you feel like you know, you forget about that. You forget that someone else might have the questions or the uncertainty or the defiance just straight away. Yeah. And I mean, it's easier said than done, right? Like I'm not pretending I'm perfect at it or even remotely good at it. I get emotional. I get fuming, you know? Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm more of the anymore today kind of like, well, I'm just not going to say anything because <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have something nice, but like trying to find some middle ground, you know, I go out into a lot of really, like you said, really areas where I know no one's thinking or voting the same way I am, but I've only run into like, somewhat curious you know oh well if you're as long as you're not doing this whatever and you just again you find the hook like oh you like turkey hey oaks feed a ton of turkey you know you run a little bit of fire through here you're gonna have the shrub anymore uh the bad shrubs and like all the good trees are gonna come in you know you just you gotta just feel them out right and just be willing at least to kind of talk to these people because i i, I feel like the few that are spiteful jerks about it are not as common um unless you really start to poke the bear so to speak so you know you just kind of gotta feel them out <laughs> be willing to talk and be a little uncomfortable for a little bit <laughs> there's um this show on hbo called somebody somewhere it takes place i think in kansas and they they do that relationship really well of like a farmer not that he's you know um close-minded or anything but just being, it really wouldn't matter who presented him with the way to make his land healthier. That, and the person who does present it in this is someone who would be um, 
maybe at risk from going into certain environments, you know, being being someone that's like an, an other, you know, part of like the LGBTQ yeah. community. And the, so the way they develop this relationship between that person who is like a PhD and t- saying like, well, here's what the soil is wanting to do and here's where your crops would thrive and the farmer responding to it, I think is a hopeful one. It's like, an, an it's not altruistic necessarily because it seems real. You know, in sports, yeah. uh, a lot more women are getting into coaching, even in, in like, you know, professional football, where you would think, well, that, that seems like such a caustic, uh, very aggressive locker room setting. And then in reality, most of the athletes are like, anyone that can help me get better and, you know, provide right. for my family and, and be the best at my craft, I'm going to listen to. And that yeah. hopefully would transcend a lot of things. So when you show up and say, you know, your land out here, here is how... Do you like turkeys or do you like, you know, what are the things that you like? Do you like clean water? Do you like it to not be full of sediment and runoff? You know, having this here is going to maybe filter that a little better. That's kind of what happened in Lake Tahoe. That's why I bring that up. They, everyone was like, oh, I got to get rid of all these two-stroke engines, which, you know, was certainly probably a good idea. But they developed this whole end where all the runoff came in. And so all this natural grassland that was kind of filtering the water was gone and so all the mud was just sliding into the lake at least that's the theory i thought made the most sense as to um why you can no longer see down like 50 or 80 feet in lake tahoe yeah yeah no I, a friend in grad school that studied this exact sort of thing is like how do you talk about this stuff to get the best results for everyone right and she was working in like rural iowa and they were working on grassland conservation issues, especially related to birds. The The funders really wanted to see birds kind of be at the center of the focus there. And, you know, her questions were like, how do we get people to do the right thing, even if it's not necessarily because of birds? And so they found, like, if you bring up, like, climate change or endangered species or rare species conservation, these people were like, absolutely not. I'm not interested. But then, you know, you start talking about, soil conservation, erosion control, um, you know, helping with pollinators for crops, that sort of like really kind of put it back to like, we live off the land. How do we hope you live off the land better? <laughs> they were more receptive to the message. Right. And so that's, that's kind of the point. Yeah. I, I mean, it could, we could go on and on with that without it being just like, um, how do you win people over? But I do think it starts with just individual <laughs> interactions. If you, Everyone would agree that looking down into Lake Tahoe and seeing the bottom of it is gorgeous. There's not a person, ah, I yeah. prefer it all muddy. Who are you? You just have taken this <laughs> contrasting, <Go away. laughs> get out of here. You, you just want to be on the opposite side just to argue just because yeah. you were at a dinner and someone made you feel dumb and that person drove this kind of car and they had a Keep Tahoe Blue sticker. And now every time I see that sticker, I think of this person and I dislike them and they tend to be on these type of cars. And so now I hate that whole group and anyone that drives that kind of yep. car, it just, it's, it takes off like a virus. And so individual interactions. Um, I had a, a friend one time we got in a, he walked away. I can't even talk to you about this. And I had to message him <laughs> later. I'm like, if you and I can't talk about this, I mean, who on earth is ever going to be able to like at large, an entire right. community of any sort come together. So I think it starts like individually. <laughs> yeah. We like each other and you're just walking away from like, I can't talk to you about this. So it's, I think it started, it starts individually. Big uh, time. I was you know, going back to your like the the grassland and encroachment and trying to keep those things healthy. I don't know if this ties in directly, but you might. I was having this thought earlier, kind of about this. People tend to think of like vegans being a little pretentious at times, and my experience is they never really mention it. 
people that I know that are vegans just order that way. And then someone inevitably goes, what are you vegan? And then they have to explain, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when did you start and why and what happened? And then maybe they just internalize that and feel bad. I don't know. But I don't find that vegans are walking into a restaurant. Are you ordering vegan like me? That you're a bad person. I've never heard anything close to that. Uh, but they are looked right. at sometimes as being a little snooty. Say that's the case. I don't know. But when it comes to waste and climate, there's a lot of like uh, packaging is plastic in the vegan world. And thinking of like a more natural existence of going out with maybe you handmade a bow and arrow and you'd be like, I can't really, I don't, I can't see my, what's the need to harm an animal? And then there's someone like you, like, man, this grassland is really getting encroached on and these deer are a problem. We need to release some predators or really hand out a lot of permits. And then those two worlds work in conjunction where murdering those deer is good for everybody, good for every ecosystem around. And that's a weird feeling to be like, no, 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 we need you out there with your handmade bow and arrow. It's less plastic. It's better for the grass. Yeah, it is a weird world. And it's one you come up against really quickly in sort of the ecology restoration, biodiversity arguments, especially the farther east coast you go, because deer populations are just the the biggest they've ever been on the history of this continent. And, you know, I, you run into people that are, you know, sort of the animal rights side of things, which I understand, like don't harm. And I can understand that. Like if you don't want to kill an animal, don't. Right. And, and field dressing is, it's, it's a heavy thing to have to do. Right. So it's even people that like meat don't want to do that. <laughs> the other side of it is, is the whole, like, we're not natural. We don't belong here. Well, it's, we're, we're, we're arguing on a computer full of rare earth minerals that we pulled out of the ground <laughs> and put together, right. With some nice hydrocarbon backgrounds. So like unnatural is out the window at this point, but you got to ask these questions of, okay, are you bothered by the act of hunting? I can understand that, but maybe don't try to tell other people what to do. The other side of it is, is, you know, we're, let's bring wolves back. I'm, I'm for it. Let's bring wolves and, and, uh, mountain lions back. Let's throw them into cities. Let's throw Like, let's just see what happens. Okay. People might not like that. Well, have you talked about maybe removing some people from the landscape? Let's not get into that argument. That's a pretty <laughs> bad one. <laughs> so what do we have left? If we want functioning ecosystems that are, you know, functioning healthily, uh, with biodiversity at the core, which really protects us against all of the problems we're talking about, maybe we should introduce some hunters right and like let people that truly do get joy out of that like you said with a bow and arrow low impact you know it's not industrial agriculture it's not industrial ranching it's it's taking an an, an abundance of animals off the landscape or getting it more manageable from a, an issue we created in the first place <laughs> yeah and such a weird one that and two, like the wolves argument. Oh, I'd prefer if these deer were just ripped down and eaten while they were still alive, <laughs> agonizing <Right>. pain. <laughs> or the simple little yeah. quiet shot right through the heart. They're like, what? What is, is it cold? Ooh. That feels yeah, more peaceful. If you go and... on nature is metal uh, and start looking at those videos, you realize like the nature documentaries leave a lot of gruesome hunting stuff, like animal on animal hunting out. Like it's natural, whatever. Very hard to watch. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a quick arrow is a preferable way to go if I had a choice personally. <laughs> Do you remember when, uh, this is a couple years ago, someone died when they were doing a sleep study, and so that meant that their brain was hooked up to kind of all the electrodes, and so they had brain waves of what happens when you die for the first time ever. Whoa. And it 
it gave some credence to some of our theories that all your memories flood through your you know, of your whole life flood flash in front of your face really quickly. And another was that your pain receptors kind of shut down. And there was some thinking that like, the mm. reason animals shake their prey, it kind of and I think of it as like a button that gets pushed in the brain that goes, this is bad. I'm checking out. And then the animal that's being shaken is just kind of glazed over in the eyes. Like I feel nothing. And that's why yeah. the, those scenes, if you watch them are so horrific. And yet from a pain tolerance threshold or standpoint, there's really not much going on there because the brain has it hit the eject button already. Weird that nature would have built in things like that. Um, so, you know, th that is an argument there that I think everyone could theoretically have very rationally, the very pro-hunting and the very pro-vegan animal rights side, and hopefully find some right. middle ground or at least some understanding, even if they never found middle ground. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to is understanding. Like, I've got pretty staunch vegan best friends, right? Like, and, you know, we've just agreed to disagree at some point. Like, we all have some version of, like, we care about the environment in our head. And, you know, you just make choices within that bounds. Um, you know, maybe we don't show them that, oh, look at this cool fish I caught the other day and I gutted it and made it into, like, we don't need to go to that route. We've got all these other cool things we enjoy together, you know? So it's it's just kind of coming, like you said, I don't know too many of the really super militant ones. So it's it's, they might sour the water for everyone else, but it's yeah. not like that most of the time. <laughs> I know, like... Yeah, I don't, I don't know where they're hanging out and or if they, they probably give off an energy in real life that's similar to behind the keyboard where most people go like, let's just buy our stamps and get out of this post office. I don't really think a conversation is necessary with whatever energy that person's putting off. Or maybe they look and act and think just like you and I and it takes a while of getting to know them and then... <laughs> it's very possible. Who knows? I mean... But I do think even if someone revealed that your fifth time hanging out with them, you know, I actually believe this, could you, you know, hopefully everyone would have the ability there to like process that and go, really you? Okay. And discuss it like in a sensible way without losing their cool and or you're dumb. Who knows? I've, yeah. But well, if you're it's, up for it, how's your logger going? It's good. It's good. I enjoy it. All right. Well, it's, me too. I'm going to. It's a hell. So it's, you know. Yeah, crisp, light, German. Yeah. Um, well, if you're up for it, we'll take a little break, and then uh, I, I still got to fill you in on my whole like bamboo and ivy saga. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to hear about it. Come back for part two. Matt is a wonderful guest. I really enjoyed the whole conversation. Uh, my beer, Simpler Times, pretty good, surprisingly good. And I found it was very inexpensive at Trader Joe's. So go look around there. You find some decent beer deals. I have all this beer brewing supply stuff to make beer, but it's fairly time-consuming, and so I just haven't been having much because it's expensive, and then, you know, it takes a long time to brew it. And then you find some inexpensive beer, and you get why all those uh, kind of cliche old dudes and, like, tank tops working on the car in the 50s and 60s cracking open canned beer cheap hams or like Milwaukee's Best or something like that it's just because it was cheap so there's a fine line there you don't want to just drink beer because it's cheap and drink a ton of it and you know I don't like the idea of beer becoming like wine where it's very expensive but I found this simpler times lager to be delightful and modestly priced so check it out and 
Uh, oh, also check out In Defense of Plants, which is Matt's podcast. If you're passionate about botany, if you want to learn more, if you think of yourself, not just children, I think when I was younger, they would say, oh, kids these days, they can't even tell you this, but they can tell you blah, blah, blah. The thing they would use back then, kids can't even tell you who the, one state senator or something like that. And now, you know, political people are kind of famous. But the, the thing that's remained a constant is most people can't tell you 10 different species of tree. Trees? Species of trees? And yet they can tell you, you know, show them a logo of some brand. They would say, oh, I know I know that brand. I know that company. Maybe that's not ideal. Maybe that's just the world we live in. But in defense of plants, more uh, knowledge being dispersed from Matt. And a very nice person. If you reach out on Twitter, take a picture of something like I did. Hey, what is this? You'll You'll probably get a reply and a host of other people that are in his sort of... Uh, world of plants will will respond and chime in and that's kind of fun it's like waking up a little community of people that are, i'm here i'm here too very nice informative willing to help and uh excited about spreading some information so anyway part two with matt coming soon let's get out of here here is uh, a song this is by alaska reed it's called back to this i hope you like it thanks for stopping by the space Bye.